Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Thursday morning, and I have some time finally. School and everything is over, put behind me. Today's my mother's yard site, so I figured I'll do the Parsha today, and then I'll give a chance for those who are overseas to get this by the time you get to Shabbos if they're interested. Unfortunately, I don't have any sponsors this week. The dry week, it's a little tough, but I'm going anyway. Uh, as I said, today's my mother's 12th yard site, so it'll be appropriate, sort of, uh, because Parsha's Korach. My goodness. Um, because of the, as I mentioned already, I find myself in a funny situation because i got to do this Zoom thing every day for my show mostly. And all the thoughts I'm giving about the Parsha end up coming from there. Even though I don't like to do it that way. But uh, Korach is very vivid. Parsha Zoo, Yof and Nidresh, as Rashi says. Uh, and the reason is kind of obvious because the Korach represents an existential the trait of the Jewish people, uh, which is this Korachism. As they say, B'nai Korach Lameso, which is always a Yiddish expression, which means there's no shul, there's no community, no school that has done up a couple of Korachs running around. Right? Because they're the, they're the outs and they want to be the ends. Okay? Whether they're qualified or not. Whether they're qualified or not. Now, um, that's kind of the interesting part of the story. There are many interesting aspects of the Korach because, uh, as I said the other day, what exactly was Korach's qualifications, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah, a guy said, I guess, Moshe, get out of the way, you're no good anymore. Well, Moshe got a track record, you understand? Now that he took him out of Egypt, he split the Red Sea, got the Torah, he saved him from the Eagles, he saved him from the Raglam, etc., etc. He got the money, got the water. Okay, so that's, he's running on his platform. What was the uh, political platform of Korach? In other what have you done? <laughs> okay, what have you done? You carried around, you know, parts of the Mishkan, a right, big deal. And number two, you're rich. Well, that's good enough for us. It's like a, the Donald Trump syndrome, you know? If you're rich, when you're rich, they think you really know, like in the in the, in the fiddle on the roof. Seriously. Now, what do we know about the character record of Korach? Uh, did he do anything famous in Egypt or anything like that? But it doesn't matter, does it? Because the people voted for Korach. That's, uh, I, I'm sure I mentioned this last year. I must have. But the story, if you properly understand how to read the Parsha, and I'm only ever giving my opinion, then you have to see a very, uh, what's the right word, cynical perhaps, or striking uh, uh, thing the Torah is telling you about politics and demagogy, and that is uh, the lousy guys will win. Because remember, the story of Parsha's Korach is the Korach one, and then, of course, God intervened, so nobody could figure that the ground was swelling up. You know, like, what the heck is that? But, Alpipashtus, it says in Medish Rabbi, even the, even the Sanhedrin uh, sided with, uh, with Korach, which is remarkable, because the Sanhedrin was created last week, or two weeks ago, in Baloscha, when Moshe said, I can't stand this anymore, this job is killing me. And God said, we'll get you 70 helpers. 
I'll give a little piece of your Ruch HaKodesh I'll give to them. And these guys back Korach. It's a, it's a very interesting story. Now, these guys back Korach. Like, uh, like not, people like Nachshem and Aminata back them Ragum. It's a, it's a funny, um, I know, I, I think Nachshem and I think back Korach. I believe it was. It's a Medrash Tankuma. I'm sure I mentioned this last year. Anyway, um, so it's interesting that Korach won. Even though, you know, he's running against a guy with a good record, and God spoke to him. Uh, I always say that Karch is like a, Parshish Karch is a refutation of the Rambam, because the Rambam says, and Rambam is a, a theologian, he li- likes to lay down these black and white situations, and uh, theorems, and as we all know, the Rambam says that Moshe Rabbeinu's uh, Nevuah is different than anybody else's, because Moshe is, is unchallengeable. Any other Navi, the Rambam says correctly, you don't know if it's a real Navi or not. I mean, how do you know? I repeat, how do you know? You give him a din of a Navi, you know, if he goes through certain procedures. But Moshe Rabbeinu was in there, a din of a Navi. The people saw God speak to him. That's the heart of what the Rambam says in Hilchis Yisuri Torah. And um, uh, not true. Here's Korach saying that the, the, the Chazal say, Lo Hashem, when he asked him about the the Tchelis and all those other famous things, he's basically saying, you made it up yourself. You made it up yourself. How can somebody do that? The answer is simple. If you know anything about human beings, and history is about human beings, people can deny what they saw. I'll just give you one example from our own time. Doesn't everybody deny the Holocaust, especially people in Europe? Even though they know, not really, get it? The answer is, what they really think is one thing, but what they say, they're willing to lie in order to advance their agenda. That's where you get the famous thing. Number one, Hitler didn't kill anybody. And second of all, he shouldn't have finished the rest of you off also. So steer him in a babe. That's who the anti-Semites are. Because saying it on purpose. Just to give you one example. The Palestinians, if they can, they can deny the Holocaust happened. Why? They don't want a justification for the state of Israel. It's not a question of the historical accuracy. So the same thing with Korach. It's not a question of the historical accuracy. Uh, it's a question that he, you know, he, he was making a rhetorical point. But the people voted for Korach. That's my point. People voted for Korach. So when the Rambam says, as a philosopher, not a historian, looking at the idea, not the humans, that, you know, the fact that Hashem spoke to Moshe at Harsina makes Moses' claim to prophecy to be irrefutable, and not true. It's logically irrefutable, perhaps, but uh, that's also not true, because people can come up with logical arguments. Yeah? If you pay me enough money, I'll, I'll, I'll prove it was optical illusion, or something like that, whatever it is. So Korach is interesting in that particular uh, regard. And um, the character of Koch, therefore, is, a, is an interesting one, because all we know is the, the guy made money, right? And I always say, you don't know where he made money. There are these some uh, stories that he found old treasures. Another one could be maybe make, he was clever in business. For a lot of people, if you're good at making money, that's enough to give you the job. History doesn't demonstrate that. It's one set of skills to make money. It's a different set of skills to lead a people and lead a country. Sometimes they don't contradict each other, but many times they do. None of that matters. And of course, Korach's, uh, the story of Korach reflects, as we all know, the uh, uh, fundamental uh, non-united nature of Jewish people. It's a particularly noted and dramatic example of a basic problem that the Jewish people have, which is we have all this period. That's just who we are. Uh, I mentioned the other day that there are articles, especially from famous 
Professor Chaim Hill Benzeson, who used to be at the Hebrew U, I think, about how the uh, Mepharshim in the 1500s, 1600s, take, for example, the Kliyakar, he's the best. In the writings of Ephraim Lunchitz, in, in his different form, the Kliyakar, the Olus Ephraim, the Amud Eishesh, goes a great deal about Korach. And the reason is, because he was in many communities in Poland and Bohemia and places like that, and wherever he goes, he saw Machlokes come up, and he always says, why do we Jewish people have this um, trait? That we kill each other, we knock each other down. It's just who we are. He said, that's part of who we are. Uh, if you want to look at it in a sort of Maharal sense, the Jewish people have such, um, uh, what shall I say, potential, kayach, the claw you throw, if, they're ever, if and when they're ever united, which it's almost never. They're mystically uh, gifted with such a powerful potential that if they ever had achdus, they could change the world. And God's not ready for them to change the world yet, necessarily. And consequently, he always introduced the snake of uh, discord into the community. And that way, the Kali's role is always ripping it's, uh, it, it, itself to bits. And that vitiates their power and prevents them from profoundly affecting uh, history in a broad sense. I'll give you one example from right now. I always say this. If, 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 everybody, every Jew was uh, backing Israel to the hilt. There's no BDS and no such thing as uh, liberal intellectuals and so forth. But they would show as much unity behind the Israel side as the Arabs do behind the Arab side, which is 99%. We crunch them. I were just a few million against a billion. Yeah, but they have that. If all the Jews were on board, we have that power. It's funny. But it's not that way. Instead, the Jews are at least half and half. And probably, I'm sorry to say, probably two-thirds, one-third these days in America, anyway, against Israel, I, I think. Maybe I'm wrong. I would, I would love to be wrong. Uh, but it's not good. And now that we have the riots going on over here and all these other movements popping up, uh, you know, don't look great for the, the cause of Israel. And the leaders are the Korachs. No, the leaders are the ones who are Jewish people, you know, advocating for this, that, and the other, and all kind of uh, uh, causes. And it's not going to be good for the Jews. I mean, you know, the, so you have the Korach phenomenon. And the uh, Kliyakar, very famously, I quoted the other day, says, you know, because he was a very powerful orator. You get it? He's one of the great Darshanim. I told you that the three biggies are the Jonas and Abishitz and the uh, Zarya Figo and the Kliyakar. And uh, he says, this is the meaning of uh, the burning bush. When God first... Uh, encounters Moshe or the other way around, he's shown a picture, as we all know, which is usually seen as a sublime image. You know, Jewish people survived middle holocausts. But not the Kliyakar. <laughs> he says, the meaning was, or one of the meanings was, that um, they'll be fired, the bush will be on fire, meaning the Kliyakar will be surrounded by anti-Semitism and persecution. And in the midst of all that persecution, instead of it generating an achdus, hasnei nenukol, the sneh from the word sino, the hatred was never exhausted. I know they're not spelled exactly the same, but you can do that in, uh, in, in Drush. And the Gemara does that. For example, harsina is called harsina sometimes. So there's precedent for that. Hasnei nenukol means the, 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 you know, the bitter hatred. And to be perfectly honest, this is not a pleasant subject. If you study what was going on in the United States of America and in Palestine in the years 1940 to 45, while the Holocaust was going on, it's not true that there was an Achdus. 
It was a tremendous period. Tremendous period. And uh, it's crazy, you know. I mean, what, what's the expression? You're rearranging the, the, the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. But we all know six men were being killed. And the American Jews were fighting each other over this, that, and the other. Uh, I don't want to go to a whole history lecture, but I know the same thing happened in Israel. It's just on Palestine. It was uh, very um, uh, not uh, uplifting. And Karach is part of that. Here the Jewish people got out of Egypt, and as they say, they finally passed the Meraglim. But, uh, you know, I think the Ibn Ezra, somebody suggests, by the way, that once they got the bad news that they're all going to die in the desert, the older generation, so that led emotionally to people saying, let's fire Moshe. No, they couldn't, they couldn't make peace with it, get it? They couldn't make peace with their, with their fate. And therefore they look for someone to blame it on, instead of saying, oh, we've been real bad. What I mean is like this. Let us say, I'm just making this up, obviously. Let's say the Jewish people got a whole Xera, they're all going to die in the desert after the Maraglam. Fine. And let's say they all got together and did a mass teshuva. Teshuva shlema, teshuva miyura, or teshuva Then it's very, it's not only possible, it's probable that the Xera would have been bottled. You understand? If the Jewish people had said, we're wrong, we see the error of our ways, we really mean it, etc., etc., and Hashem would have said, oh, you know something? Forget it. Instead of 40 years, let's make it 40 days. <laughs> we'll get you here in 40 days. Right? Uh, there are many ways of playing that scenario. You lose your money, and only Hashem can make. I'm not going to make up any scenario you want. But they did not do that, did they? Instead, what they did was they did Mahpilim, which is a different thing. We're ready to go to Israel. Meaning, that's different than saying, we were wrong to not have faith in you. We were wrong to be scared of going there to Israel. In other words, instead of approaching it from a spiritualistic perspective, they tried to do, like sometimes people do, or spouses, when there's some kind of fight, instead of saying, I'm sorry, you do something to show you're sending the message that you're sorry. Right? So there's Hinenim Apilim, Vayapilu. And Moshe said, this is not going to work. He Tislach, that ain't the way to do it. If you want to and he didn't say it, but I'm sure he must have said it, implied it, then you have to do some soul-searching. That they couldn't do. Instead, what they could do was, if the Hapala doesn't work, then try replacing it, then, then, then put the blame on Moshe. Let's get a different leadership. Um, that is not the way to get rid of the problem. And the ground swallowed up and wiped out Korach, as we all know. Plus 14,000 other people, remember, um, so in other words, there's a certain uh, immaturity that appeal that, that, that makes its appearance in this week's Parsha in connection with the Moshe incident because the real heart of the problem couldn't be gotten rid of. That's the uh, that's a very pessimistic but very realistic aspect of the Jewish people. We believe this today. Um, everybody knows. The Jewish people in exile now for 2,000 years or whatever. Everybody admits if the whole Kali Yisrael would do Teshuvah, then you do Achishenah, you know, the Mashiach will come now. But Caesar said it's done, <laughs> right? Caesar said it's done. So instead of doing that route, you know, uh, you, look, you do a Korach route. You do other things like that. You know, you knock somebody, you try to bring, change the leadership. You do, uh, what's, what's the right word? Structural changes instead of basic changes. It's a, it's a basic part of the Jewish narrative. It's, a, it's, it's really quite uh, striking when you think about it. 
because our history is composed of this. We all pay lip service. If everybody would do Teshuvah, and so on and so forth, then uh, the Mashiach will come down. But you don't see a mass movement to do that. I mean, isn't that interesting? Right? You know, you, you basically, if I was organizing this, I'm just making this up, obviously, you put out a thing, try it, why not? Now, let's go to all the Jews and say, listen, it's worth a shot. Try to do the, this path of Teshuvah Shlima for a week, <laughs> for two weeks. You know, just try it like that and see if anything happens. It's a... Uh, that we won't do. So you end up with 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 the Korach type incidents, in which you look for something different. Yeah, basically Korach was saying, you know, got us into this mess, Moshe. Right? You know why we all going to perish in the desert? It's because of Moshe. Remember all the people that were connected with Korach and the owners later on. I mean, they, they all died in the desert. You know, just sooner, some sooner, some later. It's quite a story. Now, I called attention to the very interesting Haftorah because. Shmuel Anavi is the grandson of of uh, of Korach. That's what they say. He's a Levi. He's a great 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 grandson. Whatever you call it, of Korach. Fine. Shmuel, unlike Korach, climbed to the top. Correct. Korach wanted to be the number one guy, the leader of Klal Yisrael. He never made it. Shmuel did. Shmuel did, and he did it without any underhanded tactics. If you read the book of Shmuel, you know, he was a boy raised in the Mishkan. Eli died. Eli died in, in the Kohen Gadol. I mean, Eli died from a shock from the Battle of, of, of Uffik when the Philistines captured the Ark. Shmuel had nothing to do with that. And he became the leader of Jewish people by unanimous consent simply because of his moral qualities. Because he wasn't a warrior. Because of his moral qualities. You read the book of Shmuel, it says those words. that all Christ will recognize he's the real thing. So that's like a Moshe Rabbeinu type figure. And even today... We see Moshe on Bakona, Bushmul You know that. And they tell him, you say on Friday night, Bakabal Shabbos. I don't know if you ever gave any thought to that. Moshe on Bakona, Bushmul Bakarishmul. Shmuel is Karach. I mean, he's grandson, you know, of Karach. So it's interesting that what Karach strived for, strove for, was attained in his descendant. However, and that itself, by the way, is interesting. Agreed? That's very interesting. Now, however, here's the irony. What Korach sought to do to Moses was indeed done to Samuel. Korach sought to depose Moshe, put himself in. The Jewish people, as the story goes, deposed Shemuel, removed him from office, and put in Shaul as king. Now, it's not exactly the same thing, I get it, you know, but nevertheless, the, the striking fact is there that what Korach plotted to do was done to, to Korach, or to his grandson, you know, his descendant. And indeed, all the pain that Moshe feels in this week's parasha, that was generated by Korach, is felt by Shmuel. And, you know, in this week's parasha, Moshe in particular felt um, pained at the charges of um, corruption. Uh, you know, Luchamor mehem nasasi mehem Moshe says to God, you know, I didn't cheat anybody. They're all claiming this. From which you see they did it. And the Gemara says they were, the Korach charged them with Eshesish. So, basically, Moses was portrayed in the political rhetoric as a scoundrel, an embezzler, um, an adulterer, and who knows what else. You know, you, use whatever you can. Um, and I repeat, the Lushen heart was effective. It's only divine intervention that saved Moshe. 
The Lashon Hara was effective. Um, it always is. Now, what happened with Shmuel? It's a very interesting story. The Jewish people at one point say to Shmuel, uh, you have two sons, but they are corrupt. They take bribes. That's what the Pusik says, not me. So, uh, the charges that Korach leveled against Moshe came home to roost in his own descendants because Shmuel had two sons. I think Yoel and Avia, if I remember correctly with the names. <laughs> Yoel and Avia. And uh, it says they, they were uh, corrupt. They were bribery. Or t- they took bribes. So people said, we don't want them. Shmuel himself was honest. But uh, his kids were not. H- how does that make you feel? Right? Imagine a person, a big Sadik, and who cares a lot about his reputation because, as they always say, pachem ketanim. If somebody's honest, they care about every little thing. Uh, I know that money, the one thing I have is my reputation, which I achieved by turning down ill-gotten gain, by turning down bad money. So if anybody challenges my reputation, it bothers me. You, know, you see, that's who Shmuel was, that's who Moshe was. And indeed, you see that just as Moshe said, lo chamor mehem nasasi, so Shmuel Anavi says, you know, esmi shakti, esmi ratsosi, whatever it is, miad mi kachti kofer, shor mi kachti, chamor mi kachti, you know, same thing. I didn't ever took anything from anybody. Which clearly means that despite what they said, a lot of people said Shmuel's corrupt. Uh, now when he called him out public doing it, he says, I dare anybody step forward, I will pay you. If you just claim that I owe you money or something like that, or I, I uh, falsely took stuff from you, I'll pay right now. And they said, no, no, no. Loa shakton, Loa said, you know, you, we publicly confess you didn't do it. So this interplay between the charges that's laid by the grandfather against Moshe versus this, the, the fake that happens to the grandson is just very striking to me, you understand? Now, uh, what happens? Shmuel's very bitter. And he's against a speech, okay? And uh, what, what is it? Basically, what's the speech? You know, uh, I'm not corrupt. <laughs> and you're making a big mistake by getting a king. In other words, you're going to switch to a new system. You're going to be sorry. Let me tell you something. What was Korach's plan? You think he wanted to become a king? I mean, he wanted to grab the power. And he was unscrupulous. Uh, the reason you know he's unscrupulous is he promised these, all these things to a lot of people, even though they're self-contradictory. You know, that's an old word. I'm sure I said it last year. You must have. It's not possible. You didn't hear this famous line from the Pirkei office where it says, Amachol Shem Shemayim is a hill and shaman. Amachol Shem Shemayim is Karch Vadoso. And the famous question is, what do you mean Karch Vadoso? Karch Moshe. Karch Vadoso were not the uh, protagonists. And the famous answer, old word, famous answer is, Karch Vadoso, actually they were protagonists also. They, uh, antagonists, they formed together in a coalition to knock out Moshe. But once they would knock out Moshe, assuming that they would have been successful, then they would have quarreled among each other, you know, for the top jobs. Because there weren't 250 jobs out there. So what everybody agreed was, let's knock out this guy, and then we'll fight over who gets what. That's called politics. It's regular everyday politics. And what it means is they wanted to switch the system, the Moshe system, to another system. It's striking, because Moshe, in effect, was a shofet. That's, you know, I mean, I know we call him a melech and all that stuff, but de facto, Moshe was kind of a shofet, correct? He lived in a palace, uh, he was chosen by God. His main job was being, uh, you know, judging and that sort of thing. And uh, what did Korach want to set up? What did Korach want to set up? 
he'll be the boss. So basically, be like a king. You understand? And I'm sure, had he succeeded, he would have handed it to his kids. That's just how it goes. Now, what happened by Shmuel? They said, we don't want you to leave it to your kids. Your kids are no good. Uh, get a king. And he was very uh, miffed by this, you know. And I'm sure, because if I can think of it, then he can think of it. I'm sure he saw in front of him, when he gives his famous bitter speech, you're making a mistake getting a king instead of me, he sees uh, the Korach and Moshe story. <laughs> you understand? I mean, Shmuel's not dumb, obviously. You see the Korach and Moshe story. And indeed, Moshe of Iron Bakon of Shmuel Bakur Shmuel, I could interpret it, me, me, myself, and I, I can interpret that they all had the same experience. I wonder if any commentary says that. Moshe and Bakon of Shmuel Bakur Shmuel, they're all juxtaposed in one puzzle. So they all had the experience of being politically dumped and uh, you know, the fickleness of the, of the people. And Shmuel and Moshe felt so bad that, uh, which I can understand, they felt so bad that God, according to the Ramban, God has to tell, he has to tell a lie. Um, this is in Menashe ben Israel, quotes this Ramban, that uh, it says something like, don't worry, they haven't rejected you, they rejected me. That's what Hashem says to Shmuel. And that they've been doing this to me ever since we left Egypt, so welcome to the club. You know, you want gratitude? Don't deal with the Jews. And the Ramban said that was actually not true, that they rejected Shmuel, they didn't reject Hashem, but Hashem saw how, how pained, how depressed Shmuel was by this rejection. Uh, you know, politics is a bitter business. And he said, no, uh, in order that Shmuel shouldn't be so bad, Hashem says, I'm telling you, I know what's in the hearts, and it's not about you, it's about me. That's what Hashem said. This gives you an uh, a indication of uh, the, the hurt. You know, they fell. All of which makes it a fascinating human story. This is a fascinating human story. And, uh, by the way, everybody was going to back the knocking of Aaron out. I thought Aaron was so beloved. And, you know, he, he fixed the marriages and, you know, all that sort of thing. That's politics. Nobody cares what he did from yesterday. That's, you know, what does somebody wave in front of him for tomorrow? It's, it's the downfall of the political system because the public is very fickle. That's what you get from Parshish Korach. The public is extremely fickle. Uh, you know, Ha'im Tamnu Ligvoah, you know, they blame most of it. He killed Korach, he killed 14,000, he killed all the rest of them. We're all going to die. It's all Moshe's fault. They never take the blame on us, on themselves. But that is the way of a public, you know. They never take the blame on themselves. That's what happened in America now. All the groups, they're looking for someone else to blame. Never take the blame on themselves. It's a high madrega to recognize that you, the fault lies in you. They go to shrinks for that. Um, but in the broad politics, the public doesn't take the, the blame. Public's always looking for a scapegoat. Now, uh, I mentioned yesterday is, uh, that I always, whenever I think of this Haftorah, uh, which is very striking, you know, because that's where Shmuel warns if you have a king, it'll be a dictator and it'll take your lands away and all the rest of it. Uh, Mom like Moshe, you know, Moshe didn't charge any taxes, Moshe didn't hit anybody up for much. It's, it's just interesting the parallels. And by the way, they're all levies, right? Moshe, Aaron, B'chal, Shmuel, B'chal, Shmuel, they're all levies. Uh, so I'm giving you food for thought this Shabbos. If you want to have a real discussion, you look for the parallelisms of Moshe and Shmuel. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Plus, it also raises the question, was Shmuel and his family 
part of the Bnei Korach that composed any of the Psalms. I'm not saying Bnei Korach Mizmor. You know, there's a whole bunch of those. I must have talked about that last year. I think I remember vaguely. I don't listen to the old things. Uh, but I mentioned yesterday, whenever I come across this uh, speech, I'm reminded of a famous farewell sermon by Jastrow. Because uh, Marcus Jastrow was the guy who wrote the famous dictionary of yesteryear. Uh, now it's gathering dust after the art scroll now translate everything. But it used to be, when I was young, you want to know what something is in English, or at least it's a shot at it. You know, you went to a Jastrow dictionary. And um, Jastrow, Marcus Jastrow, Mordecai Jastrow, was a uh, reform rabbi in America. But not exactly. Uh, this is in the 1800s. At that time, the reform hadn't worked itself out to its logical conclusion, which is to reject everything. And Jastrow was a rabbi from Eastern Germany. He spent some time in Poland. It was very modern, like you'd say, a very left-wing orthodox. I guess you'd say like Avi Weiss type thing, sort of. And uh, not exactly, but sort of. And he ended up coming to America in his 30s and became rabbi of the Road of Shalom Congregation in Philly. And he thought, I'm telling you what he himself says, he thought that uh, the Orthodox services, all the rest is a turnoff, and the younger generation is leaving the Judaism, and he will attract the younger generation, I'm talking about the non-from younger generation, uh, by changing and reforming things. Change the sitter, change the davening, um, you know, uh, uh, the organs and the mixed seating and the whole whole business. But but in the context of, you know, sacrificing a chalik in order to preserve the remainder. That's the, that used to be the policy of a lot of people in the reform. And uh, he was rabbi there for a little 25 years. And uh, he had bad health, actually. And, and then he was canned. He was only like 62 or 63. Uh, so those the shul retired him because they said we want to. By that time, they said you're not far enough left for us, and they hired a real reform rabbi who rejected everything. You know, because the classical reform of the late 1800s, early 1900s, got rid of 99 percent of Judaism. They openly said it. It's called the Pittsburgh Platform of 1885, and uh, in principle, and from the point of view of Jastrow, this is going too far. Whereupon he and some other guys got together and started the JTS, the Jewish Theological Seminary. Uh, See, so he considered himself, he considered himself, extreme left-wing Orthodox. Uh, but what actually what he was, what, but it's not true. What he actually was was extreme right-wing reform. So this is all complicated stuff from uh, yesteryear. If you're at all interested in this, there used to be a guy Davis, Moshe Davis, who taught at the JTS, and he published these books. Back in the in the late forties and early fifties, something like that, about the history of the rise of what we call conservative Judaism in America, in which he was interested in all these uh, phenomena. The Hebrew book, uh, I forget the title, I have it somewhere, is very good because he has these pages we can fold in like charts, and you can see what each sitter ch left out. You know what I mean? So Jastrow wrote a sitter and it leaves out a whole bunch of stuff. But the later reform sitter leaves out 99% you know, of, of the dominant. So when he was canned, he gave a farewell speech and was Pasha's Koch. And he said, you know, he paralleled the speech of Shmuel and Nobi, 
and he said, you're getting rid of me, it's not fair. You know, he said it a lot more elegantly than I'm saying it now. And um, as happened with Shmulanovi, you know, the the king you're going to get, you think is going to, um, you know, solve all your problems, but the king will make things worse. He was, of course, referring to extreme reform Judaism, and uh, very bitter. You know what I'm saying? He's always threatening. And he said over there, I see today that all the reforms I, I put in were brachalotolov. I made these changes sincerely, he said, hoping that this would attract people to Yiddishkeit. But the more you watered it down, the less it attracted people to Yiddishkeit. And so very bitter, you get it? Very bitter. He didn't look at his career as a successful one. And it wasn't. Uh, but he identifies very interesting way. You could probably find this online somewhere. I have it somewhere. Somebody sent it to me long ago. I solicited a friend of mine to get it for me. And uh, it's like in... And I just don't have the patience now to go look at my old emails and locate exactly where it is. But he darshans line by line. And uh, in each case, you see the same phenomenon of the Korah. What did Moshe Rabbeinu think when he was outvoted? Before the ground swallowed up. That changed everything. You understand? But in the five minutes before that happened, when Moshe came in, in, in the middle, before God said, Hey, Alumi Savib, Lumishkan. Uh, right? Now, at one point, Hashem says, you know, I'm, I'm going to kill everybody, get out of the way. But until then, that whole night and uh, morning, when, uh, when Moshe sees which way the vote is going, and uh, it's, l- let me put it this way people he relied on, Anche Shem, Rashi Amatos, he thought this was going to be his time. I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure. That Nachshmanaminov was one of them. I remember that from the Tanchuma. In which case, all your old reliables are now switching the Korach. Really, really, this is a a wake up call for everybody. Al tiftchum in You know, don't don't you can't trust uh, people because it's fickle. You know, same public is like that, and that's why everybody can only look to Hashem. That, that's that's the real from meaning of the Parshas Korach. Mm-hmm. You can't even look to people. You can't say, well, they'll back me or this time because I've helped them or I've done this for them. Because the public, as a public, doesn't show gratitude. All the Muslims farm were into the godless of Akar Satov and the badness of Kofi Tov. If the books have to write about it, it it's around a lot. You know what I'm saying? That's it's because most people are just pragmatic. What's helping me now? Who's helping me now? And um, loyalty... Is, is, is not uh, high on the agenda. It's the, when the Torah tells you these stories, that's always my uh, theory, they're existential, you know. Torah is with us today. And, 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 there, and there's not possible to design a Jewish organization or, or institution or country without Torah, right? So what it means is when you go into building anything up, you realize there will be some snakes in the Garden of Eden, but you have to study the parsha, uh, how Moshe deals with them, um, in order to you know try to figure out what to do. But that's very depressing because Moshe has to rely on, on a miracle. But one thing you do see, and with this I'll conclude, Moshe is very classy. He doesn't say, "Okay, I'm going to get revenge on everybody who did this stuff to me." And he prayed for the people that uh, you know, prayed for the people that that uh, you know were against him. And when it's all over. Uh, he says, Hashem, don't kill the others. And uh, Aaron stops to my uh, These are classy actions. 
from this you see that even if you get into a fight, you have to take the uh, high road. But it's, it's easier to say that I don't like to issue platitudes. Because it's easier said than done. If somebody messed me over and called me names the way he corrected the motion. I don't think I have an enemy to be nice to that person. Or, you know, it's a... <laughs> it, if you want to be honest about it. You know, Moshe Rabbeinu is Moshe Rabbeinu. <laughs> you and I are not onomikolodom. But at least it sets a standard to which we're supposed to strive. Anyway, these are just, as I said before, a few thoughts. There are other parallels to the uh, uh, Shmuel and the Moshe story. And if you uh, give them uh, the right amount of thought, uh, then, you will, uh, then you'll, you'll notice them yourselves. For example, Shmuel is a successful war leader without actually fighting in the battle. You, you, if you look in the book of Shmuel, he's a successful war leader without fighting in the battle. And that's who Moshe was. What did Moshe do in the battle of Amalek? He didn't go fight. He held his hands up. You understand? He was, it was a davening thing, like the Mishnah says. It was, you know, spiritual. Uh, this model of spiritual leadership is a very unusual one, very interesting one. Uh, but I think I've made my point. Anyway, with that, I wish you a good Shabbos. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.